So, Anne, we are here at Abby Jane Bake Shop, a recommendation of our last guest, Kendall Antonelli. And uh, I'm sitting in front of a giant cinnamon roll that Anne is getting ready to dig into that I'm not partaking in completely. I'll have a little bite. doing lay mass whole 30 January so she can't have the cinnamon Bullshit. roll bit. are you ready <laughs> no I, I might actually sneak a teeny tiny bite because we came all the way out here and I want to taste this deliciousness but oh um I'm eating yeah. I'm going straight for the heart of it the oh. heart of the cinnamon oh. roll where all the butter and cinnamon <laughs> she's mm. enjoying her first bite so how is it mmm I'm afraid to tell you. Is it delicious? It is delicious. <laughs> we'll move out here soon. We're moving in the end of the month, so. We'll oh, oh, you'll get you'll get <laughs> yours. Yeah, I got the last cinnamon roll, and apparently they are coveted treats, and I know why now. Yeah, they're absolutely delicious. They're they're super cinnamony. They're not too sweet, but mm, they like the they do have some cream cheese icing. So we jumped from Kendall, and now we're stepping into a deliciousness of a different kind. Mm-hmm. From her recommendation to deliciousness of sound. And <laughs> we like making these stretches. Yeah, like it's a big stretch. Linking our, our um, hidden gems to our intros Yeah, our next guest. So our next guest yeah. is not really a hidden gem to to us but she is buttery to the to the ears so <laughs> that did you like that did I you like that. With that that was awesome all right all right That's great <laughs> All right. buttery sound. She's got a buttery sound. Amazing. Sarah <laughs> All right, folks, let's dig in. Welcome to Under the Moon Tower, a podcast where we delve into Austin's unique people and places beyond what you might find on a city's top 10 list. Thank y'all for listening to Under the Moon Tower. Today, we have Sarah Sharp with us. Thank you for being here, Sarah. Well, thanks for including me. This sounds like a really neat group of people you're talking to. Well, I want to give a little intro on you because Sarah is a multiple Austin Music Award-winning songwriter and jazz singer. She is a former member of the Jitterbug Vipers And you might know her from her album of Viper-inspired originals, Phoebe's Dream, which earned top five placements, get this, in the 2014 Austin Music Awards for Best Female Vocalist, Producer, Songwriter, Album of the Year, Song of the Year, Band of the Year, Best Jazz Band, and was featured on NPR's Song Travels with Michael Feinstein, who suggested that her original songs were destined to become part of the Great American Songbook. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. (laughs) Also, the Houston Press has compared Sarah to Tina Fey, which, Sarah, (laughs) I thought that was hilarious, but they were comparing you based on you being a woman in a male-dominated space. Sarah currently has a residency at the Elephant Room, where she performs with guitarist Mitch Watkins. And in addition to being a soulful jazz singer, Sarah is a mother of three dynamic kiddos, all of whom pursue various musical abilities. So I first met Sarah decades ago when we were young and life was still very new. And I know Sarah to have one of the fiercest work ethics out there. It is incredible to be sitting here 
interviewing you about your contribution to the Austin music scene, the world music scene. And it makes me wonder what you're going to manifest in the next 25 years. Oh, oh. I like thinking about it that way. We're really excited to to have you, Sarah. And I actually, I had the opportunity to hear you play at Parker Jazz Club. And I'm almost certain it was one of the first nights that they were opened up after the pandemic shut down. We were super hungry for going to a local venue, seeing a local artist, and you were spectacular. So I just want to say I, I have had a chance to hear you live. I also, just to kind of kick things off, I had read that you come from a large musical family. And it really got me thinking about how much music shapes our experiences. Music is a big part of my life. My mom plays piano. My brother plays the guitar and sings. I played piano and French horn growing up and sang in choir. My dad always had the records going for my sister and I to dance to. And it was just ever present which is why I think I'm so passionate about it. But I'm curious if and how your family dynamic impacted your love for music and your professional choices, like why jazz and how it shaped your writing and your experiences as a performer. So my mom was the oldest of eight kids and she was a pianist. And so was my grandmother. So they both have degrees in classical piano. All of my mom's siblings could sing and most of them played instruments. So my grandmother's house was the place where not only our entire family would gather, but a lot, lots of other families. And any gathering always ended in the living room with guitar and piano and lots of songs and harmonies. And I thought that everyone could sing. I thought that everyone could sing four-part harmony. Um, not everyone can. That's hilarious. <laughs> <Yeah>. Just FYI. <laughs> I never had a musical <laughs> gathering growing up. <laughs> so, well, and, and this was a really tight-knit family. All, all eight of my grandmother's children and their spouses. And, I mean, I'm one of 22 grandchildren on that side of the family. So we'd get together for Black Eyed Peas on New Year's Day and Easter and everybody's birthday. I mean, it wasn't just like Christmas and Thanksgiving. It was constant. And it always ended with everything from like Simon and Garfunkel to show tunes to um, all the greatest hits. My uncle Brian was kind of the one who led it all. And and he was somebody who as a young, like in his twenties had troubadour style, gone around playing guitar and singing all over Europe and, and had done the most like performing out loud on purpose for other people outside of the living room. But we all, we all had like our, you know, like the song from my fair lady, home again. And there's like all the parts. Mm-hmm. We all mm-hmm. had these interweaving parts, like sing a song, sing a love. And but they would be, even those parts were harmonies. And so you would have these layers upon layers weaving in and out and people just kind of knew their, their part. And my first, like as a little girl, my first solo, the one where they would like, let me take it by myself was the rainbow connection. That that would be my little solo of the night. That's so cute. (laughs) When I started and I, as a, you know, as like an eight-year-old, I was doing softball. I had a couple of piano lessons and then I asked my mom for ballet and this was old school Houston. She was like, I'm not driving your ass all over Houston. You will pick one thing and that will be the thing. And so I chose ballet and I never learned an instrument. 
And I was still saturated in all this music, but it wasn't until I joined the choir in ninth grade that music started to really become my thing. But I was kind of, unfortunately, I never learned an instrument. So I got in the choir and I, this was like a big deal, Lamar High School Choir, like an incredible program. But that was the first time I started to realize that not everyone can sing or can sing in tune because I was standing around people thinking, why, why are they not doing this right? <laughs> like, could you read music, but you weren't playing an instrument or was it audio? Like- Everything was just, just by ear. And then, you know, in choir, you learn, you learn to read your line of the, yeah. of the notes. And then, I mean, I, I can sort of read music because I have a music degree, but when you don't play an instrument, you don't use it very much. Just to piggyback that, the jazz, why did you choose that genre or that style of music? I was a really late bloomer with jazz. I mean, I was a late bloomer with everything. I didn't play an instrument. I just had a kind of a good voice and a really good ear. And I was part of an incredible choir program in high school. And so I was, I had been pretty serious about ballet for a lot of my childhood in you know, I'd be there like 30 hours a week in the summer and it was an intense program. And then I just, I was never going to be like the best at that. I was, I was never the best at it while I was doing it, but I was very dedicated. And when I let that go, music just became the thing. Like if I'm going to go to college, I I think I want to study music. And I didn't have the kind of family that would like take you on college trips. The only thing that ever occurred to anybody was we'd go to the University of Texas. And of course, back then, you didn't even have to write an essay. Like you just submit your SAT scores and you you got in. And I got something in the mail about Berkeley College of Music. And I ended up getting a a partial scholarship and going there. And that was beyond my parents' comprehension that anybody would go out of state for school. But um, when I went there, that was the first time I knew anything about jazz. The only thing I knew about jazz before that was, for instance, the kind of songs that might come from a musical like Porgy and Bess, like God Bless the Child, or that, you know, where where some of the old musicals have those songs that have become standards. But I didn't grow up listening to jazz. My parents didn't listen to jazz. I knew nothing going into college. Wow. So so you <laughs> went off to Berkeley School of Music and you studied singing. Mm-hmm. And then did you come immediately back to Austin? No, I, so I kind of did it quickly because what I had offered to me by my parents was what it cost to go to UT. So I had a partial scholarship. I, I did it in six semesters. I, you know, I graduated early and when I was 21, I moved to London. And the first time I sang publicly in any kind of band was as a 21 year old in London and I had never been to Europe. When I went to Berkeley, I'd never been to Boston. Like I didn't even get to visit the school before I showed up for the first day of school. And then when I moved to London, I'd never been to Europe and I was found my way into some bands and started doing it. And it was more blues because really towards the end of of studying at Berkeley, they just like spelled out, here's what blues is. Here's what makes a blues chord progression. The one chord, the four chord, the five chord. And, you know, now you can listen and realize like so much of rock and roll is based on just those three chords. And these songs are, are, are a 12 bar blues progression. And so we, I learned that, oh, wow, all these songs, if you just know what key it's in, you can call out that key. And anybody who knows how to play blues can play a song with you, even if y'all never met. And so the first thing I did in London was to start going to the blues jams 
And I had like, you know, like my Bonnie Raitt song or my Aretha Franklin song or whatever to, to just be doing it, to sing and would show up and play at the blues jams with strangers. Then from there, I started to get like into bands and I was in like a cover band and had a, a jazz residency. In London. In London when I was 21, 22. That's amazing. And then what lured you back to Austin? I met my ex-husband there and he's from Manchester. He's an Englishman. And we eloped because of the logistics of not being separated. Like I was there just on a tourist visa and I would have to leave and come right back. It was, it was easier than to just stay for almost six months. And then you got to like go to Spain or something for the weekend and then come right back in with a new tourist visa. So I got away with that three times. And then after I'd been there like 18 months, I got detained and I almost (laughs) didn't get back into the country. So my ex and I eloped and we were together almost 20 years, but I I brought him back to us. Once I was married, I, I really couldn't handle the weather in London anymore. We were sort of starting a young adult life. I, I didn't want to be in London. And he was in music and tech, so he was willing to come here. Right. So and it was a good time to come here for, for those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how have you seen since you've I'm, – I'm curious because you've had a really interesting window so far in your time here on the Austin music scene. Can you describe it, like how you've seen it evolve from the early days to now and kind of where you see it's going? Well, okay. Halfway through college, I actually lived here for a semester in 90, well, the beginning of college in 96. And so I used to use my sister's ID and I would go on actual sixth street, like what we call dirty six and, and hear like sister seven. And there was a gypsy jazz band that played. It was a place called jazz, but it was like a new Orleans Mm -hmm. restaurant. Mm. That was before I was even of drinking age. And then when I moved here in 99 and started to play, it was still some of the clubs we would play were on that part of sixth street. It was still really the, the music district. And I had a Friday night residency at the Ritz downtown, which used to be a huge arcade, like huge arcade down below. And then up above, it was an old theater. And eventually it got turned into the Alamo draft house on sixth street. Is that still an Alamo? I don't think so. Mm-mm. So we, I played every Friday upstairs at the Ritz and I mean, places like room 710 and fades and then, then everything kind of, so things moved from that part of sixth street where that really was the music when Austin started to call itself the live music capital. And then everybody gets, it's the same thing now. It's just constantly like a steamroller that, that you create these creative districts and then everything else comes and follows. And then, then you can't afford to be there anymore. So you, find a new district. And so it was the Red River district, like room 710. And then everything moved to West Six, like Momo's. That was a really glorious time. I would say that was like early 2000s, mid 2000s. And then, and even that's not really the music part anymore over there on West Six. It's South and East. And and I mean, a couple places still like right downtown exists, like the elephant room's been there the whole time. And that, that's my weekly show. 
I mean, it's the same way that, the, you know, as Austin grows and everything becomes more dense and more expensive and there's gentrification, it, there's the same thing as the gentrification of the venues. They have to mm-hmm. constantly find the new place where they can afford their rent. But the reason that neighborhood like Rainy Street, I mean, that, uh, uh, what was the place on Rainy? They, they built this wonderful stage in the back. And then the condos came up all around it and would like call in the noise complaints and they had to shut down their stage. Their music all, venue. Huh. But the, the Rainy Street was there because of, <laughs> you know, the district they created became a thing that pushed it out. You know, mm. Right. Mm-mm. Right. I mean, I don't want to be negative about Austin, but one of my favorite venues of all time was Shady Grove. Oh, yes. And I'm, I'm friends with, with, some of the owners, Angela and Rusty, they're a couple, they used to be waiters there. And then they ended up becoming owners. And for years they were holding on for dear life because that part became so desirable. And then all these condos came up around them and the property taxes they were paying were based on the vertical value of the, the value they created for that whole area. Hmm. And so when COVID hit, I mean, they, they were they were holding on for South by Southwest to happen to prop, maybe get them through another year. And then it was just like, call it. And to me, that's one of the biggest. I mean, there's so, there, we've lost a lot. But. Yeah, I agree. I felt that one. I felt that the Shady Grove, we've been going there for a long time and it was. Just the most real. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. trees and the, the Thursday nights and yeah. when they would do the music. We missed it a ton. I mean, I know everybody did, and especially being from Austin or having lived here for a long time during the pandemic, when things were shut down, I had just, I had moved here maybe, I don't know, seven months before the world really ended <laughs> for a while. And um, one of the reasons we moved here was the music entertainment, but I started a neighborhood gathering and we dubbed it COVID City Limits, and we'd book musicians on a Friday night for like a one-hour set. And we'd pay them a, a decent booking fee, and then Overges would go to nonprofit music organizations like Ham and Sims. And it was awesome. It was a great chance to connect with your neighbors and just making meaningful connections through music. It, you brought up this point about Shady Grove, and it makes me think as like the world is opening back up again. Are you seeing musicians' livelihoods coming back to a baseline? What can the community do really to keep that? music capital of the world vibrant. Let me think of how to say this. I am someone who, when I play the elephant room every Tuesday, I'm not doing it because it pays the bills. It doesn't come anywhere near paying the bills, but it's based on the culture of people tipping. Just kind of like if you go to the Continental Club, you know, they pass the bucket around. Saxon Pub, they pass the bucket around. Unless you're charging a cover at the door. But we're, I mean, ours is like the early show. If we charge a cover at the door, we're probably not going to make more. We're just going to turn people away who end up, most of them, throwing some money in the bucket or, mm-hmm. or digital tipping, you know. So the newer people in town don't realize how much of our culture has evolved that we are mostly earning at a live show from the tips, unless it's a bigger show. You know, I, I'm not like somebody who sells out the Paramount for a Christmas show, you know, like I'm not making that kind of money. I do earn a living when our band plays private events and we play, I mean, through the years I've played countless and that all disappeared for COVID and it's coming back, but it's, it has, it's, it took longer to come back than even I expected, but it's like playing every Tuesday 
and being part of the community and having this thing that we we get to work out ideas and we never play the song the same way twice and we love each other and we love the music that people come by and they they happen upon it and then they know about us and then they have us play for something in their home or an event or whatever and then that's when we like make decent money but yeah. in general, I don't think hardly any musician in Austin has ever had the baseline covered just by being a musician. And now it's it's beyond nowhere near the baseline. So I know very few. You just have to be at like that. I'm touring. I'm, I'm getting played on the radio. I have an agent and a, I have a new record I put out. It's doing decently. Like all those things have to be happening for you to be anywhere near the level where you could just pay the basic cost of living mm-hmm. to be in Austin. So almost everyone has other jobs. Yeah. We had friends that were doing like digital shows. I mean, obviously during COVID, I'm like, I wonder how much of this is going to stick, you know, the virtual, mm-hmm. do the virtual engagement supplement the live opportunities. I mean, it's so much more fun to to do something in person to your point. Mm-hmm. It's just a different experience, but rounding out the opportunities to keep these musicians working and doing what they love and what they're good at. It just seems like it's getting harder and harder. Well, there's a certain amount of like, it makes everybody better. You know, you have to, you, nobody's going to hand give you anything just for being a musician. Like you really want what you're doing to be compelling enough for people to show up for for them to show up all every time for them to put money in your direction. So like there's, it makes everybody try harder to have right. that much saturation and competition or whatever. I mean, I, you know, I don't mean it competition like anybody's against anybody else, but there's that element. I don't, I mean, I don't think it, it doesn't for the overall quality, it doesn't help for there to be any kind of like handout. Although Pam health Alliance for Austin musicians is amazing. I don't know how to put into words for people who don't understand what's going on there. What a yeah. difference that Tell us, explain for our listeners exactly what HAM is and what it does, because I think it is an incredible organization. And I don't know if everybody knows about it. I just got through my renewal of my membership and you got to put in your membership number. My membership number is 17. Oh my gosh. (laughs) First first year resident alone. (laughs) That's amazing. When I first joined, I was getting assistance with dental, but I didn't get any assistance with healthcare because I was married and my husband had a, you know, not, he wasn't like breaking any records, but he was definitely making more than like the 200% of the poverty line. I think it's like 200, 400 that you have to meet in order to get like help with the medical part. But definitely as a divorced person, I have had help with the medical part too. In more recent years. So SIMS provides medical, mental health services, medical, dental services for musicians. So there's SIMS and there's HAM. SIMS is incredible for mental health. HAM, H-A-A-M, is the Health Alliance for Austin Musicians. So you have to qualify for different levels of it. And I mean, you have to prove that you really are an active member. And I mean, the, the part about it, I don't know if this has changed or expanded, but you have to live in actual Austin mm. and maybe they've expanded it to like Buda and that, but I don't think they have, but health Alliance for Austin musician gives either subsidizes your it's through the marketplace, but there's, 
lot of people in the music community who would not be getting any, would just not be going to the doctor if it weren't for that safety net. Do you think Austin is still an attractive place for budding musicians to come to? Do you think they still want to come here? I'm sure they do. It's just, you know, like everything else, you have to adapt. You have to constantly just adapt and do whatever it takes to be be where you need to be and make the music you want to make. There's that fierce work ethic. (laughs) (laughs) I hear it. (laughs) Okay. So Sarah, looking back now on your career so far, I'm curious what you would tell your younger self about being a musician. Like what pearls would you give her? What encouragement? What warnings? And then the second part is, what do you want your future musical self to know, remember, hold on to? I think that, well, I'll probably answer that second question first, because I already like had a reaction to it or a response. It's just like, tell my future self, it's all going to be okay. I'd love to be able to tell my future self, you did it. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) What would doing it mean for you? What does that mean? Because to me, I'm like, you you do it. You've done it. You're doing it. You continue doing it. Well, I I think that what we're doing on Tuesdays, we're really doing it. And and so that part, I'm already just really grateful. Grateful that I get to the people who who play with me want to play with me and that we we just adore each other. It's so obvious that any one of us would take a bullet for the other. And so we're there because we need it. We need each other and we need the music. The most successful things I've done were when I was with Jitterbug Vipers with Slim Ritchie, the last record we made before he died. It's called Phoebe's Dream. And it, it, I think it has legs. I think it might outlive me. And ironically, it's the least expensive record I've ever made. I, I really want to make the record like of under my name of the more recent songs I've written that, that would be like career-defining record. And I think the songs deserve it. The songs that are already written that I wish I could record well. And that's a long conversation of why sometimes that goes well. And sometimes it doesn't. There, As somebody who just sings and co-writes songs, there's so many factors with making the right decisions of where to record, who to produce, the budget, you know, getting it right. So that future Sarah is so proud of this record. (laughs) <laughs> not proud, like I need to be validated, but that it connected in an authentic way that it came across the way it wanted to, to, you know, be born and have a, some sort of positive ripple effect to people being able to listen. You know, we didn't talk about the writing process for you, but where are you finding kind of that inspiration? What's your, I guess your process and your activities that you do to psych yourself up to to write and to find that authenticity in your in your music. Well, I'm just starting to get back in the flow. It's been so much like survival mode the last few years. I can say in the past when I was super productive, doing morning pages is a, is a big thing for me. Are y'all familiar with that? Mm-hmm. But go ahead and explain what that is. I mean, the best thing I can do if I, if I want the music to flow and for something to happen is to get the kind of sleep where I really dream. Because that's just like straight ticket. The, you know, everything that would like to come through, it's all there in the unconscious. And when I'm in where things are really flowing, I don't sleep with anything electronic in my room, but I still have my phone nearby because I have to be able to hit record and catch what's falling out of my face when I'm like 
starting to wake up. And I mean, some of my best songs, like just caught and, and, if, and you're not going to remember it if, if you don't, when you're sort of still have one foot in both worlds. So to me, that's just like the easiest to be as connected as possible to the unconscious. So the morning pages from the book, The Artist's Way is got your journal and your pen. And the moment you start to wake up, you don't even like go pee or anything. You just start writing and you don't let your pen stop for three pages. And it's like taking out the trash, kind of. It gets things flowing in all aspects of your waking life. And it's not something you're meant to, when you're doing it, treat like, oh, this is my like journal material that I'm going to use for lyrics. If you're really supposed to maybe put it away and wait months, three months or more, like before you even go back and read whatever your pen just did. And even if it's, I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write or wrong. And then it becomes like stream of consciousness. Um, It's a really powerful tool for me, which I should start doing again. That's why these conversations are good, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just getting the sense that you have this big thing inside that you've been nurturing and kind of preparing the ground for like this garden that you're about to just plant over your necks and, you know, you're fertilizing the soil, you're tilling it, you're getting it all ready. It's there. And it's interesting that you say that because you and I have um, the yoga teacher, Jen Wooten in common. Mm -hmm. And she told me that I was in a fallow state and that there was a true purpose to these fallow states. Yes, there are. I feel it coming. And I'm like, yeah, I feel it coming too. I just wish it. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Giddy up. Giddy up. But yeah, everything, you have to kind of let it take its process. And, you know, you're an artist. But I still have, you know, more than an album's worth of stuff I've written that is worth recording. Absolutely. It's going to sound new to everybody else. (laughs) Right, right. We really appreciate the, the time connecting with us, Sarah, and telling us more about yourself and your journey as a musician here in Austin. So at the end of each episode, we do a lightning round of questions about your favorite local experiences. And we thought we'd uh, find out what yours are, if you're ready. Yeah, I didn't prepare, but here I go. That's the best. <laughs> That's the, <laughs> best. the best. Just whatever comes yeah. to mind. Okay. Um, favorite music venue? Mm. Well, I mean, I like the elephant room. <laughs> Tuesday is at 6 p.m. particularly, right? <laughs> I love that things are starting to happen again at the Cactus Cafe on mm. UT campus. It's such an exquisite listening room. And Continental Club. I can't say one. Uh, favorite breakfast taco? Fair Cruise All Natural, the original location by my house on the east side. I think that's what, four now, Anne? Mm-hmm. I- I'm telling you, it's the best one. Nobody can beat it. <laughs> I'm with you. And what is your order there, Sarah? La Reina. La Reina. Okay, that's mm-hmm. a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Best hidden gem. Ooh. I like, I don't want to tell y'all. So <laughs> everybody says. No, I will. <laughs> we make the no. listeners listen all the way through, though, FYI. Well, there's a spot. There's a spot on, I like to paddleboard. I think that's going to answer another question, too. I spend a lot of time on my paddleboard. And there's a spot in Lady Bird Lake that's not Barton Springs where this amazingly pure water juts out of the, out of the cliff and it's mm. crystal, crystal clear. And you have to know, you have to like go behind branches and you have to 
know how to get there. The way that there's like this fissure in the rock right as it reaches the waterline, and that's right where the water is shooting out. It's quite Mother Earth that you'll see visually. It's like, wow, lady, hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm picturing it. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So it's like a, a baptism. <laughs> uh, <yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get you to take me there. <laughs> I'll take y'all there. <laughs> um, advice for newcomers. Oh, I don't know. Maybe slow down a little, take a breath, a little more kindness. I think that the people who've been here and especially the people who are holding on for dear life and don't have the kind of wealth that the newcomers are bringing deserve all of our honor and respect. Mm. Stop and notice people other than yourself and be kind. There is something to be said about respecting the place that you live in. And that obviously encompasses the people. One of the things I love most about this city is how warm the people Mm -hmm. are. There is something tangible about what people love about Austin and the warmness and the kindness is one of those qualities. So it's like, how do you keep that going? So I I think that advice really, really resonates. At least for me, it, it does. Austin's, it's a great city. It's fun. There's lots to do. It's a real nice place to live. So <laughs> yeah, I really thank you for taking time and energy and just creating space to be here with us today. It's been so lovely talking to you. We've got to go get our paddle board on. It's been too oh, long. Yeah, we will. It, yeah. it flew by. Thank y'all for having me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, where can folks check out your next gig? I know you kind of mentioned it, but time and place. Well, always at six on Tuesdays. Occasionally I go out of town, but pretty much every Tuesday we have the early show. We play two sets. So like from six to seven and then from maybe 7.15 to 8.15. It's a five-piece band, all-star band. That's my regular thing. And this is at the Elephant Room, if you missed it earlier. So yeah. Elephant Room on Tuesdays. What's your Instagram <laughs> handle, Sarah? Sarah Sharp ATX. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it, Sarah. Thank and y'all. we'll be by to see you soon. Great. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Wow. So you've known... Sarah, how long, Anne? We've known each other since our 20s, essentially. My cousin also grew up with Sarah. I think they did dance ballet together. So I heard about her pretty much Hmm. my whole childhood and then probably got started to get to know her in my 20s and then really reconnected with her when we moved to Austin in 2015. So yeah, she's really incredible. It's wild. I know that we're going to have other folks from the music industry in Austin on the podcast, but it's interesting to hear a perspective from more of, I'd say, like the underground. It's not that it's underground, but, you know, like a genre that is unique. And I, you know, I didn't know that there was this ever-present jazz community in Austin. I knew, obviously, there were different genres of music here. But after talking to some folks, especially when we went to the Parker Jazz Club, I was like, wow, there's a lot more going on here that I did not No. Yeah. And I think as a performer or a creative, like Sarah was saying, like, I'm waiting for it. I still want that thing. I think a lot of creatives feel that way. They produce something that lights on a lot of people, makes a a big impact, right? Because as an outsider, 
looking at Sarah and as a friend and watching her over these years, I'm like, she's incredible what she's doing, what she's been able to do. The fact that she's still playing and singing and she's made this her life's work. That to me, that connection is with her art in that way is so amazing. It was really a good discussion. It was. And so now you and I need to go to the elephant room Tuesday night, 6 p.m. And we need to get Sarah to take us paddle boarding. 100%. One, I miss going paddle boarding. And I think the last time I actually went- Was with me? I mean, can you freaking believe that? On a full full moon paddleboard? Oh my God, it's been so long. It's been so long. But I think that those are our next next stops. Totally. All right. Well, we'll see folks next time. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find Under the Moon Tower episodes at underthemoontower.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. So follow us on Instagram at Under the Moon Tower or shoot us an email with any questions or feedback at underthemoontower at gmail.com. And special thanks to Brandon Burke for production on our podcast. See you next time.